This week, again, we pick up our study of the book of Galatians. We're still in the introduction, the first five verses. And so as we begin our time of study, let's read together Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And why don't you go ahead, if you have a New American Standard updated edition, read it in unison with me. If you don't, you can look at it in the Pew Bible. That's the version I'll be reading from. And let's stand as we read the Word of God, showing our honor for His Word. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Join me. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Now let's sing the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The book begins, Paul, an apostle. And as we have seen for the last couple of weeks, the word apostle delineates someone that has a commission. And so it was similar to the English words today, an emissary or a diplomat or an ambassador or what the church has used almost completely to uh, refer to this kind of calling today. We don't usually speak of those sent to foreign lands as emissaries or diplomats or ambassadors for Christ and his church. We call them missionaries. But missionary is one of those spiritual terms that um, sometimes clouds the meaning as much as helps it. And so let's remember that an apostle was someone who was given a job And in this particular case, the apostles in the New Testament were given the job directly by Christ. Paul received his commission directly from Jesus Christ. He makes this explicitly clear a number of times in his writing. And he has, then, the authority of the one who has given him a commission. He carries out that authority, just as uh, officers in the military have the authority of their commander-in-chief, the president. The Apostle Paul has the authority of Christ. Now, these apostles were a gift to the church. They were a gift to the church for its planting, the work of evangelism, but also for its protection, the work of instruction, the work of discipline. And they were given that the souls of the church might be saved and kept safe until the return of the Lord. As it says in the passage of Scripture that you and your house fellowship groups will be studying not tonight, but next Sunday night, in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 11, if you'd turn there with me, please. 
you'll see the context in which the apostles are given their authority and the context in which that authority is to be exercised. And it says there in Ephesians 4.11, it was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, at that point, all of us are completely in line. We're all in tune. We're all tracking, right? Uh, because we're real familiar with that text. The notion of the gifts being given to the church as a whole and those gifts being exercised in the church so that the whole church is built up. So that the church is built up and then, verse 13, reaches what? Reaches unity. All right? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So again, we're familiar with this. The gifts are given to the church so that the church is built up, edified is the word that we would normally choose, again, because it's a spiritual word. And you, think of, uh, you think of sheet rockers when you think build, but edify, you think of really spiritual men like pastors, you know. Um, Tim, you at least know what I'm talking about. All right, so we're all on track, maybe build up until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. We all want to be mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And again, this just feels good. But then notice the next verse. The next verse says, then we will no longer be infants. Well, nobody wants to be an infant. Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of disunity and division. But that's not what it says. It says, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. What I want you to notice here is that you have a predisposition, and it's a, a cultural one. I have it too, and that's why I recognize it to think that any time the Bible talks about unity, it's going to talk about exhorting us to love each other. I mean, that's just what we think will always be the thing that produces love, or unity, is just love. You know, overlooking sins, forgiving one another, loving each other. But if you look at the text and you see what is it that produces maturity, what is it that builds the church, what is it that leads to the unity of the church here, I want you to notice that it is truth. And we don't usually think of truth leading to unity, do we? We don't. In fact, the, when I first came to Bloomington, I'll never forget, because I was brand new, they had gotten somebody to preach the first Sunday evening. And uh, it was a local pastor of a very large church, not in Bloomington. And uh, this pastor uh, went in a tirade in our evening service against truth. And the, the, uh, the central thing, a recurring saying that he used over and over again as he attacked truth was to say that doctrine divides, but Christ unites. All right? And that's all through the Campbellite movement in this part of the country. That doctrine's negative and that 
Christ is positive, and when you know Christ most, that's when you will most love people and have certain feelings of, of, of Christ-likeness. Do you understand that? And, and that's what all of us tend to think. We tend to think that if we just can feel the right feelings, that then the church will be united, we'll love each other, our homes will be happy and content. But look at the text here, and notice now that we've gone through it once without me pointing to truth. This time I'm going to point to it. Watch this. It was he who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Notice those gifts. All of them have one thing in common. What is it? All of them have this in common, that doctrine is at the center of their exercise of that gift. Notice that in this context, there's no mention of the gifts of mercy. All right? Every one of these gifts has at the center doctrine to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may build up until we reach unity in the faith. Not unity in sentiment or emotion or feeling, but unity in faith. And faith is a doctrinal word. Faith is in some particular truth. And in the knowledge, again, a truth word, knowledge, should be very popular in Bloomington with IU here. Of what? Well, not of the liberal arts curriculum, but of Knowledge of the Son of God. And then we will become what? Mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We'll no longer be infants taught back and forth by waves and blown here by every wind of what? Teaching. All right? And by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. And in that context, it's very clear these are men who teach false doctrine. All right? Instead, speaking the truth, speaking the truth, words, doctrines, speaking the truth in love. And again, with that text, we tend to think of speaking the truth in love. Well, you know, I didn't receive that in love, you know. That's how we think of that text. But first, hammer down the first part of the text. It's speaking the truth in love, all right? So no matter how much you say you're, you're, you're speaking love, Lenin, love, 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 love is all we need. All we need is love, 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 And you begin to think that the one thing our culture can't know anything about is love. Because this is all it talks about. All right? Speaking the truth in love, all right? What? We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. You see the unity. We'll grow up into him. And there's only one him, isn't there? And it's Jesus Christ, all right? So what you're seeing here is the church is being united as all those men who have the calling of doctrinal instruction exercise the instruction in the church. And the people then are, as they sit under the godly biblical instruction, are united in love. So in other words, the person who says doctrine divides and Christ unites is a false teacher. He's a deceitful schemer. All right? It serves his purposes to tell you that. He's trying to get people away from the true church into his church where he can milk them of money and he can have large numbers and he can live off of fleecing the sheep. And you're susceptible to it because all of us like the idea that doctrine divides and Christ unites. Now, of course, the word Christ has no content by just saying Christ. It's just a name. So what do we mean when we say Christ? And there the problem begins. <laughs> when we say Christ, is it the Christ who leads me to affirm my own sexual differentiation? Is it the Christ who leads me to believe that I can kill my unborn baby and still say that this is, as the PCUSA paper on abortion says, quote, an act of faithfulness before God, unquote. 
All right? Is that the Christ? Is it the Christ that the Muslim will say uh, is uh, permeating all of the great paths of religion? Is that the Christ we're speaking of? And immediately, what are you doing? You're asking doctrinal questions. So don't ever forget that it is only in the context of apostles exercising their office, and today pastors, teachers, and elders exercising their office, and the essence of that office has nothing to do with money. It has to do with doctrine, instruction, and then the uniting of the fellowship together as everyone believes the same thing. Now you say, well, what's that? That's like um, a bunch of automatons uh, having no individuality. No, we're not saying... Every, in every particular, we believe the same thing. In this congregation, just a, a show of hands, how many of you are premillennial? Raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand. And how many of you are all millennial? Raise your hand. And how many of you are postmillennial? Raise your hand. Oh, come on, we have to have one. All right, yes, we have a postmillennialist. Excellent. Okay, God bless you. <laughs> and if R.C. Sproul were here, he would be one. All right. Now, how many of you believe in infant baptism? Raise your hand. How many of you believe in infant dedication? Raise your hand. How many of you think that both infant baptism and infant dedication are wrong? Raise your hand. Now, see, that's diversity. How did you get on the pastoral staff? <laughs> Is that you too? Oh, man. Not the band, you guys. You too, too. All right. So we have diversity in this congregation, and it could go much farther than that. How many of you have and believe you did right in having your children go to public school? Raise your hand. How many of you have and believe you did right in having your children go to Christian schools? And how many home schools? I mean, that's pretty equal. Okay, Marilyn and I have done all three. And we're still prepared to do all three. Now, that's not what I'm talking. I'm not talking about these areas where Christians differ and that in the church, everybody believes the same way on these things where it is arguable what Scripture says. My own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, allows people to be members of its congregation who do not believe in infant baptism. Now, the officers do believe in infant baptism, but the congregations, many, many of them, who are a part of members of the PCA don't believe in it. And you can go across church history and you can find people differing over many things, but still being a part of a local church and a national church that is edified, that is built up until it reaches maturity in its head, Jesus Christ. And when it says Jesus Christ, it means the Apostles' Creed and everything that flows out of it. It is not an anti-supernaturalist household of faith. It believes in miracles. It believes in the virgin birth. It believes that the Word of God is in every particular true. That it is every word fully true. All right? And I could go on and on saying what the church of Jesus Christ is united in. But I want to go back to where we started. And that is an apostle exercises his office for the building up of the church. That office is an office primarily of instruction. And as that office of instruction is exercised, proper doctrine is taught and preached. 
and applied one-on-one. It doesn't stop when I get done giving a lecture, but afterwards, we talk to one another one-on-one and we apply what's in the Word to each other's lives. And that's what the elders spend the majority of every meeting doing. All right? They try to think, how does Scripture apply to us as a church? How does it apply to this family? How does it apply to my family? How does it apply to this individual? What are the words of encouragement or correction that need to be given in this situation? This is the job, and it is a doctrinal job. All right? When I spank my child because my child isn't showing respect for his teacher, all right, that is a doctrinal act. It is... A doctrinal act because when my child learns to respect his mother and his teacher, he is learning to honor the father from whom all authority comes. You see? Doctrine. And so, in this book that we're studying, Paul, an apostle, he is an authority in the church. And you know, I used to get turned off when people would write and when they would speak and when they would always say, Paul, an apostle. The Apostle Paul. And I used to think, why don't you just call him Paul? And then I repented of that this week and I thought, you know, that is a good discipline. In the same way as we're teaching Taylor, starting this week, that any time he is given a command directly by an authority, his immediate response is to be what, Taylor? He wasn't listening. <laughs> what were you thinking about? Oh, you're writing something. Well, you better listen. <laughs> okay, let me repeat my question from my dear son. Every time you're given an immediate, a command by an authority, what is to be your immediate response? Yes, ma'am. Yes, mommy. Yes, daddy. Or yes, sir. Okay, And as he does that, what? His will is instructed. And I learned this from my son-in-law, who when he would come home to visit us with his girlfriend, who he hoped to marry, he would look at me and he would say, Sir! And I'd think, (laughs) I didn't know who he was talking to, you know, and ma'am. And I figured out that's Mary Lee. And, And then I learned he's from the South. And then I began to fall in love with the South. Not because I wanted to be addressed that way, but because I saw this permeating his life, this doctrine of authority. I saw that it extended how he related to his bosses. It extended to how he related to the Word. I saw that he saw the necessity for him to be an authority with my daughter, even though he was completely inadequate for the job. But as an act of the will and discipline, he believed the doctrine and he lived it. Paul, an apostle. So as we preach and study the book of Galatians, and as you refer to Paul, don't just call him Paul. Say the apostle Paul. Now, don't take this too far. Sometimes uh, you can take this too far. Don't take it too far. Okay, I'm not suggesting that you begin... Uh, making little obeisances every time you're around an authority. Uh, that gets nauseating. You know, I remember my dad saying, you know, I'd ask my dad, what do you want for Christmas? And my dad would look at me, and of course I loved my dad and kissed him and hugged him and called him dad and never spoke to him disrespectfully. But what he said to me was, you want to know what I want for Christmas? I want an obedient son. And so there is the danger of having habits of language that replace obedience and honor. 
You can honor people with your lips and not with your heart. So let's not get all wrapped up in our language. And nevertheless, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, Paul and Apostle. And so he leads into this and we read that almost immediately as he leads into this, namely the book, what does he say? He joins the battle. He uses his authority. He sets it out there and then he jumps right into the battle. Now it's kind of curious that the battle is joined through really what was a polite act at the time, and that was, I said last week, that letters at the time, back then, were much more reasonable than they are today because they had right at the top the person that was writing and the person to whom the letter was addressed. I talked about how it's so inconvenient that we always have to look to the end. That's why email is maybe caught on the way it has, because you can look at the header, you immediately know. All right. Well, back then, the person that wrote, the person that it was addressed to, right at the top, you could see what was going on. Paul, an apostle, and then a few words later, to the church in Galatia. So the writer's Paul, the apostle, and the people being written to is, are the church in Galatia. And then the battle is joined. And what is the battle? Well, we see it joined in verse 3. It gets done saying who it's to, the church is a Galatia, and then it says what? It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now at the time, the culture that Paul was writing in was a very cosmopolitan, sophisticated culture. It would have been like any of the, ba- the major cities uh, of the world. And like most cities, there are people groups that live in the city, all right? I was reading an article this last week about how many uh, Iranians live out in the L.A. area, estimated from, what, 100,000 to 900,000. Huge gap. They can't decide how many there are. And so there's this whole subculture from Iran, all right? And you go into other cities. You go down to Miami, huge Cuban and and Hispanic subculture. It's like uh, sort of the capital of Central America in some ways. Well, in the, in the time of Paul's writing, the three major cultures that were coming together were Rome and Greece, and in the context of the church, uh, the Jews, I- Israel. And so, at that time, letters at the beginning were begun in Greece with the word rejoice. That was typically how they began all their letters. That was the supreme good of uh, the Greeks. Now, what about the Jews? How did they begin letters? Well, I remember a few years ago, I was up in Ann Arbor at, uh, at the University of Michigan or Michigan State. I don't remember what it's called. And uh, I was checking into a dorm for a conference. And as I stood waiting to check in at the uh, counter of this dorm, uh, there was a man behind the counter, and he looked at the man in front of the counter. I could tell they didn't know each other. But as they looked at each other, one said to the other, Shalom. And what did I learn at that moment? I learned that they were Jews greeting each other. And that's how the Jews began their letter. They began their letter saying to one another, peace, which is the the meaning of the Hebrew word shalom. So what's Paul do? Paul's predictable. Paul takes the the, the sort of Roman Greek context and he takes the Jewish context and he pulls them together And he says, grace and peace. Now, is that what Paul's doing? Is Paul trying to, uh, you know, dot all the I's of the various cultures he's writing to when he says grace and peace? Does he just mean the sort of uh, uh, bonhomie kind of uh, hail hearty, fellow well met, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, uh, 
have a good Thanksgiving stuff that we mean when we greet people in America today. You know, is that what he's saying? Well, now that's not what he's saying. When he says grace and peace, it has a meaning that's entirely different from the meaning that the people of his culture at the time had when they greeted one another that way. Um, what is grace? Grace, and I don't know if you've memorized the definition of grace, but you all need to memorize the definition of it because it's not a word that you will use day to day. So you have to know what it means. And the word grace, and you, know, you can look up and get a different definition, but the word grace is God's unmerited favor. When God gives us something good that we don't deserve, that we have absolutely no basis to demand it from Him. This is grace. When somebody does something for you that's kind, it's a graceful act. You have no reason to be able to demand it. It's a graceful act. All right. And so, the Apostle Paul, when he is saying grace, he is engaging the very center of this letter and of the doctrine that he is about to teach. He is immediately engaging the enemy that he is writing this letter to engage. And that enemy is a doctrinal enemy. In other words, when Paul, seeming to be simply polite, at the beginning of the letter says grace and peace, Paul is making a doctrinal truth statement. And this is what will permeate the book of Galatians. We're going to return again and again and again to this first word right at the beginning, this word grace. All right? He says, grace and to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The source of this grace and peace is the one from whom all good is to be sought. It's not just a good vibe that you give to somebody else out of the goodness of your heart. It is a spiritual good that comes down from God. And he makes it very clear, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So no, the Apostle Paul does not send general wishes for well-being. He's not giving seasons greetings. But rather... He is calling down from God, the source of every good and perfect gift, these two supreme goods, grace and peace. All right? Now, when a Christian uses these words, grace and peace, what does a Christian mean? Is a Christian just referring to general good vibes that prevail between people that don't have anything either one wants? Grace and peace. Somebody you run into in Kirkwood. Grace and peace. You know, peace to you, sister, brother. Two um, Christmas carols have become uh, much more special to me in the last few years. I have no idea why. Maybe it's because in my old age I'm becoming uh, more cheerful. But uh, I, I, hear the, I hear the laughter of skepticism. <laughs> But the Christmas carols are two. God rest ye merry gentlemen, and good Christian men rejoice. 
Um, let me read you the words, some of the words of these two Christmas carols. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. Fear not then, said the angel, let nothing you affright. This day is born a Savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in Him from Satan's power and might. O tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. Then good Christian men rejoice. Good Christian men, rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now you hear of endless bliss. Joy, joy. Jesus Christ was born for this. He hath opened the heavenly door and man is blessed forevermore. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Peace, peace. Jesus Christ was born to save, calls you one and calls you all to gain His everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. Okay? O oh, tidings of comfort and joy, now ye hear of endless bliss. Joy, joy. Now ye need not fear the grave. Peace, peace. And the Apostle Paul begins his letter, grace, and peace. Now you see, this is the center of the Christian message. This is the very heart of it. Grace and peace. And not just a sort of warm, well feeling towards one another, but grace and peace from God, our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you a question. Does this mean that Everyone that lives today simply lives in the gift of God. There's no appreciation of the good without a recognition of the bad. Right? What do people live in today? Make no mistake about it. Every soul that has been born has a choice. Every soul has a choice. We can choose to continue in our sin and to lose our true selves to lose our true selves in disbelief. We can harden our hearts against God and the good news He has revealed in His Word. This is, after all, the broad path that leads to destruction and what Jesus said was that there are many who find it. How perverse and twisted that having been given a path of salvation, a path of grace and peace that... Men should thrust it aside, thrust it aside, an active, active push, thrust it aside, and choose instead the slew of despond and vanity fair. What would possess men to follow such a path which certainly leads to destruction? Now, we must be clear here. When God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. Most men who have heard this message across history since the supreme act of the giving of grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ from the cross, 
Most men who have ever lived, and that includes men and women, have turned their backs on this gift and have actively thrust it from themselves. They have resisted grace and they have gone to hell. Now, this is just what Jesus said when he was here. Now, you would all have a different choice at this point in the sermon. If you were writing the sermon, I have no idea what you would come up with. But to me, in the last 20 years, the supreme tragedy that was lived out in our culture, I always go the same place, and that's Kurt Cobain. All right? I just think it's still being lived out in front of us. You know, Courtney Love was in the news in the last couple of weeks. And so I want to read a couple of lyrics from their Unplugged in New York album. And I want you to see that this was, at the time, far and away the most popular album in America. And ask yourself, actually not the album, it was, it was, it was another album, but uh, nobody would argue that Nirvana was uh, not loved across America. First of all, this one, this is called Jesus Does Not Want Me for a Sunbeam. Jesus don't want me for a sunbeam. Sunbeams are never made like me. Don't expect me to cry for all the reasons you had to die. Don't ever ask your love of me. Don't expect me to cry. Don't expect me to lie. Don't expect me to die for me. Jesus don't want me for a sunbeam. Sunbeams are never made like me. Don't expect me to cry for all the reasons you had to die. Don't ever ask your love of me. And it sold and it sold and it sold and it sold and it sold. Another one, Lake of Fire. Where do bad folks go when they die? Again, Nirvana, Cobain. They don't go to heaven where the angels fly. They go to the lake of fire and fry. Won't see them again until the 4th of July. I knew a lady who came from Duluth. She got bit by a dog with a rabid tooth. She went to her grave just a little too soon and she flew away howling on the yellow moon. Now the people cry and the people moan and they look for a dry place to call their home and try to find some place to rest their bones while the angels and the devils try to make them their own. Where do bad folks go when they die? They don't go to heaven where the angels fly. They go down to the lake of fire and fry. Won't see them again till the 4th of July. It all seems like a game when it's coming over the radio, doesn't it? But you bring the words of our culture into the church. And to call them depressing would be completely inadequate. And who really would be surprised if this man were to kill himself? And if his wife would be just a slower version of his own self-destruction spread out over decade after decade after decade... And so, brothers and sisters, when the Apostle Paul... Okay, get out of the mire for a second. The Apostle Paul says, grace to you and peace. The last thing in the world that should be to us is ho-hum. You know, think about the poor sucker at a fraternity. And his life's goal is to get a beamer. 
Now think about the bodybuilder. You see these pictures coming out of Arnold Schwarzenegger 20 years ago, you know, lathering up before going on the television set. You know, think about the poor man in Washington who's, who, who all he has to look forward to is someday maybe having an abortive run for the presidency, his, his moment of fame. You know, think of Andy Worrell. You know, think of the person who spends their entire life preparing for their senior recital, and then every note that comes out is, is like a honk. You know? Think of the person who prepares to get the Ph.D. and then is standing next to his major professor at a music convention with all of the, the fawning, uh, groupie uh, ex-students standing around who have now made good and taken positions in other schools. And, and he has his professor stand next to him, he who is about to walk the same path and, and someday come back and, and pay obeisance before the same professor from Indiana University. And he has the professor turn to him and he says to him, What, Wayne? And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God gets a hold of Wayne at that moment. And Wayne realizes that the professor is speaking truth and that it doesn't get any better than this. And God turns his heart entirely away from everything Wayne's life has been leading towards. And then he has grace and peace from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. And out of that ground, unbelievable plants blossom. And I'm not just talking about his children and his family. I'm talking about me. I want to close by reading to you and I will do this often in the course of our study. I'm going to read to you from anybody want to take a guess? Huh? No, not in the book of Galatians, not Calvin. Martin Luther. Good guess, but wrong. Any other time you would have been right. <laughs> Here's what Luther says about these words. He says, These two words, grace and peace, comprehend in them whatsoever belongeth to Christianity. Grace releases sin. And peace makes the conscience quiet. Don't you wish that you could have had an hour with Kurt Cobain? And that you could have sat down with him and said, Yes, your diagnosis is entirely right. As you sit here, Jesus doesn't want you for a sunbeam. As a matter of fact, you are a thunderbolt from hell as you sit here. But the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. You, you, Kurt Cobain, just like you, the Apostle Paul, just like you, King David, just like you, Abraham, and Isaac, and that scoundrel Jacob, all right, you can have peace with God. Grace releases sin, and peace makes the conscience quiet. The two fiends that torment us are sin and conscience. But Christ has vanquished these two monsters. 
and trodden them underfoot both in this world and the world to come. Only Christians have this kind of, and here's this word again, doctrine, and are exercised and armed with it to get victory against sin, despair, and everlasting death. Was Kurt Kurt Cobain armed with this doctrine to gain victory over sin, despair, and everlasting death? And if he wasn't, why wasn't he? You know, I can't help but believe that there were those who fawned over Kurt Cobain who knew the gospel of Jesus Christ and who were ashamed of that gospel. Now, I'm not attributing Kurt Cobain's position in eternity to anyone but himself and his own responsibility. But when you look with eyes that see at the souls that are around you and you think, do they have these goods that the Apostle Paul just freely sends into the Galatian church at the very beginning of his letter, do they have grace and peace? And the answer will be no. And then the question is, what are you going to do to give them these goods? If they were hungry and you had an extra hamburger, would you give it to them? Well, yes, of course. If they were hitchhiking, would you pick them up in your car? Well, yes, of course. If they needed help studying and to be tutored, would you help them? Yes, of course. And I can go on and on and on saying the common things that you would do, but... You have grace and peace, and they're listening to the dark side of the moon. And what? You're indifferent to their eternity? And and, and you would be conscientious with their temporary life? You'd clothe them if they were naked? You'd, You'd feed them if they were hungry? But you have nothing to satisfy their conscience and their despair. Well... You can do what Paul did and give them grace and peace. And that's through the cross. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Give ye heed to what we say. Jesus Christ was born today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. We thank you that gospel simply...